Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm in India. And we are your theory doctors. Hello, everybody. Hello, Hannah. Welcome back. Hello. Welcome, welcome back. How are you, Hannah? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. How's lockdown treating you? Well, it's not really lockdown anymore, is it? It's strange. I don't... I, I can... I can... I'm happy with the absoluteness of lockdown or the absoluteness of no lockdown. It's this halfway yeah. thing that scares me. Well, yeah, and it's scarier now because, of course, the virus is still prevalent. Yeah. It's just that now people can do what they want. You mean it hasn't gone away yet? We were told it would be no. going away. It's weird. We were promised that it would just disappear. I don't know if that's a failure on the part of our democratically elected leadership or if the virus is just unpredictable. <laughs> what are we talking about today? Oh, uh, well, we're just talking about the news today. Oh, yeah. We've, we've, we haven't done a newsy episode in some time, I think. I know. I think we have. What are, do you have like a favorite kind of episode that we do? Like, is there like a genre that you prefer i mean the the popular culture episodes are more cheery often or at least less depressing and i think i feel it's interesting because our our disciplinary differences are significant i i don't know if you feel the same thing but when we do popular culture episodes i feel more comfortable in that this is more within my wheelhouse as it were i i feel more confident in discussing cinema or TV or, or, or whatever. Uh, and when it comes to straight-up politics, I know there are lots of other people who are much more qualified to talk about this stuff than I am. I don't know if you find the same thing. Yeah, I agree. I think, too, popular culture is, I mean, there's a reason we study texts and not other things. And it's because it's self-contained. Yeah, yeah. You can yeah. talk about a music video or a commercial in a way that talking about the state of the world is, you know. So we're talking about the U.S. election today, and we I'm just thinking we haven't done a U.S. election episode in a long, long, long time. I know. But do you, why do you think that is? Um... Apart from the fact that it's soul-destroying. <laughs> I mean, U.S. politics has been a bit of a shit show for four years. A long-ass time. Yeah, and it feels much I mean, longer. Yeah, well, I feel like we didn't do... We spent a lot of time, and this is like dating the podcast now, we spent a lot of time talking about the 2016 election. Yeah. Like we did Brexit. We spent a lot of time on both of those things as they were playing out exactly four years ago. But there's, it feels different 
now talking about this stuff. And I, I wonder if it's just because it's hopeless or if it's all the same and we have nothing else to say. I think partly it's that. I think partly I've been, so I've been following elections like I do obsessively. I can't not. Yes, you do. I do. We have, you and I have chatted about this, about how I will most definitely stay up and watch all night election night election coverage. And you most definitely won't stay up all night and watch election night coverage. I know, it's not going to change the result. But how Whether can you sleep not, not knowing what's happening? Um. <laughs> But for me, the for me, it's been that that sort of weird, sort of post-traumatic flashback, because mainstream media again is full of how Trump is certain to lose, and whether will the Democrats get the Senate as well, and you know what will happen to you know down ticket ballots and all like the the similarity in terms of how the media treated a Trump victory in 2016 as next to impossible is very, very worrying. Um, Yes. And, you know, we can say this as not huge fans of Joe Biden, but obviously we would much, much rather Biden win than than Trump win, which is what makes, makes the complacency of the mainstream media really worrying because it seems they've they've not learned anything in four years and that's just one aspect of it isn't it yeah so as as we record this biden has just announced kamala harris as his running mate um the news stories are full of uh sort of biographical accounts as you often get but also uh op-ed pieces uh podcasts opinion pieces uh straight up news about the historic nature of the candidacy so she's the first woman of color she's the first african woman african american woman she's the first uh south asian american woman uh to to be uh on the ticket of a major party if she wins she will be the first woman vice president and it's not that we aren't bothered by the historic nature or, or it's not that we don't recognize the historic nature but there are things there are questions about ideology and race within the democratic party and and the way race does or doesn't map onto the divisions within the democratic party that the harris pick as as vp nominee has exposed for us right yes yeah i mean i think (sighs) What is really, what it, what's really interesting, I had a couple of thoughts when I read about this. First was I wasn't particularly surprised because um, partly the decision is, is usually practical. Um, it has to do with, with other things going on. So um, her, Kamala Harris's replacement in the Senate will be chosen she's she's a senator from california so california is a very safe blue state it's a democratic state it's a democratic governor a democratic governor who is quite popular in the democratic party he's gavin newsom is i mean he he was a, a bay area politician before he was governor so there is there's a a safety to giving giving Kamala Harris's seat in the Senate away. So that's one bit of practicality. Um, It's also sort of tradition. And this is 
one of the thoughts I had had to do with this. Some of, there's a bit of tradition around picking someone that everyone already knows. So voters are already familiar with all of the people who are running in the primary. So, so usually somebody who has been in the public eye as part of the primary races is a good choice. Um, Because people are pretty familiar with the politics of all of those people who run. And Kamala Harris was quite a popular candidate when she was running in the primaries. Lots of people, um, for for various reasons, were really supportive of her run. She's relatively popular in California. Um, Her her Senate activity is well supported in California. People like that she's in the Senate, generally speaking. There's lots of, obviously there's criticism, right? Any mainstream Democratic candidate will get criticism from the left. obviously as as they should that's the point of the left right um but she's i wasn't that surprised basically given what i know the interesting thought i had two thoughts first was it's interesting that joe biden of all the democratic candidates super white uncle right he is your racist white uncle well-meaning or not doesn't matter is his his interaction with the White House is basically now defined by his proximity to and close working relationship with Democratic candidates who are Black, which I think is just a really interesting, kind of bizarre thing. The other thing I was thinking of was the last woman to be a vice president on the vice president's well, in the vice president's seat, was Sarah Palin. The last time this happened, John McCain picked Sarah Palin as his running mate, which was completely different in every other possible way. But, I yeah, it, I was like, oh, okay, interesting. Kamala Harris is a bit more to the left than some of the other options. Sarah Palin was... Way to the right. <laughs> I think it's it's interesting that the two the two comparisons. There's lots to be said there. The the it's interesting how Biden's Harris pick has been seen as the sort of pragmatic pick in terms of a safe choice. You know the the cliche is you pick a vice president who will who will do no harm as a pick. Uh, it's someone who is well qualified, ready to go. If if something should happen to Biden, he's not the youngest of men. Um, whereas for McCain, the pick was seen as the exact opposite. Right? It was the it was seen as the um, the the pick that sort of uh, in in a in a in an openly, nakedly strategic way, tried to placate a certain part of the Republican Party with whom McCain had struggled to get traction. Right? McCain was not seen as as a standard bearer for the far right of the party, which is now the entire party, uh, sort of. Um, <laughs> and and but but the the way that that choice backfired was was really interesting. Um, you mentioned Biden as the 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 racist uncle. Uh, for those of those of you who don't remember, in in two thousand and seven, in the lead up to 
the 2008 uh, presidential election, which obviously Obama won, but during the Democratic primary in which both Obama and Biden were candidates, Biden famously described Obama as the first African-American candidate who is articulate and bright and clean and a nice-looking guy. Um, <laughs> which, you know, there's a lot to be said there. Um, he He clearly hasn't met many... African Americans. Uh, I know, or African American politicians. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting is that 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 clearly didn't stop the Obama team from picking Biden. And we can we can say more about what the Obama team think thought they were doing when they picked him. But it's interesting that there is a there is a slight sense of history repeating itself in the opposite direction because in the in the primary debates for this election, perhaps the most memorable primary debate moment was when Kamala Harris singled Biden out for for quite a um, quite a pointed attack on Biden's uh, based on Biden's uh, alleged support for for busing, um, which we we've spoken about busing before in a in an education episode. Uh, Busing involves uh, taking African American kids and sending them out to other school districts uh, to socially manipulate um, uh, race proportions, race ratios of of student population. And Kamala Harris used her background, her personal lived experience as a woman of color, uh, as an uh, African American woman, uh, in in order to to challenge Biden, as I say, in, in a very pointed moment. Um, this then led in the in the lead up to uh, to the to the pick, Chris Dodd, you know, the whitest of possible people, white senator from Connecticut, said that he didn't think that Biden should pick Kamala Harris because she was not apologetic enough. Um, and there was a lot of really really blatantly racialized commentary on, you know, how ambitious is Kamala Harris and will she want to be campaigning for president from day one if she's picked as as vice president? As, you know, reinforcing the racist and and misogynist stereotype of, you know, the uppity black woman who, if you you give her an inch, she will take a mile. She's always out to, out to, uh, to, um, benefit herself as if no white man has ever done that um and the the the, the really all of this this is a bit of a rambling point but all of this to me speaks to the really interesting complex relationship that white democrats have with black democrats given the overwhelming black support for the Democratic Party. In terms of a racial group, there is no other group in America which is as securely, in terms of numbers, on on the on one side of the political divide, right? You, there are basically no black supporters of the Republican Party, essentially, uh, in, in statistical terms. Um, so given that overwhelming nature of support the the difficult relationship between white de- white democrats and black democrats and the way in which uh an insurgent black candidacy like obama feels the need to attach himself or felt the need in 2008 to attach himself to 
a racist white uncle, well-meaning or otherwise, and now the party has shifted or, or maybe not shifted to the point where that racist white uncle feels the need to attach himself to one of the biggest names in black democratic politics. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a... It feels a bit like it's a, a decade and a bit long a kind of internal debate or yeah. discussion, or like like tension. Like there's, and I don't mean tension in a kind of, in a negative way. I just mean as, as like there, as power moves between and, and from um, different points in the Democratic Party that it it has a kind of seesawing effect. Um, but we were talking about the um, the Democratic Party. So the the it's not something that I spend that much of my time reading about and delving into because I find it emotionally draining reading about the Democratic Party a lot. Um, <laughs> it's it's difficult reading. Other people are fascinated by it and love it. And you probably read more about them than I do. But what is really interesting and what I have been, what I have been following this year with very, very real interest are the primary Senate races and the primary house races where democratic socialists are running against either incumbent Democrats or mainstream Democrats in order to flip seats or in order to take a safe Democratic seat. And they, the Democratic Socialists put people all across the U.S. and at every scale of government. So they have, they will run people in city elections, they'll run people in state elections, they'll run people in national elections. And it's a really fascinating strategy and it has led to some some electoral results and electoral gains. Most famously, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, um, who's in the House in uh, a seat in New York City. She represents her own constituency, where she's from, um, which is relatively unusual. And I've been following some of these races with real interest. Um, the Democrats are always trying to unseat Mitch McConnell uh, in Kentucky, and the Democratic Socialist candidate, um, Charles Booker, he very, very, very narrowly lost his primary. And it looked for a bit like he might win, which is actually like unbelievable. Like it, it is, it's unfathomable how close he came. And those races, I think, are really interesting because they say something really important about what's happening in the Democratic Party and specifically about race relations in the Democratic Party and how black candidates and white candidates speak to each other, how they speak about each other, how they try and win votes. And what I find really interesting about the the recent successes and semi-successes, like I think Charles Booker's campaign was a success, even though he lost. I think it was a really, really important moment for Democrats in Kentucky is black democratic socialists and other democratic socialists of color, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, really, they managed to speak to a really broad cross-section of people based on race identity. 
Black candidates now are winning a lot of votes among white people. And this was always, I think, in 2008, this was a real surprise for the mainstream white Democrats that Obama could win votes among white people. I don't know why it's a surprise, but I think there's just a sort of assumption that white people are fundamentally racist, which they are. But what's interesting is that the the relationship that the mainstream Democrats have about race, which is quite a, a, it's a simple story. It's, it's, it's almost, a, it feels more like a fantasy than a fact that there's a sort of fantasy about how white people vote versus how black people vote. And that they're sort of pitted against each other. When in reality, the white vote's very fractured, but the black vote is too. <laughs> and the, the things that people vote for and the people that people vote for are far more complicated, but also more logical than the Democratic Party seems to grasp. And this is where a lot of the left frustration with the Democrats comes from. It's like working class people want to vote for a candidate who isn't going to take away their health care. You know, the, <laughs> why would you put someone as a Democratic you know, decision-making committee? Why would you put someone in power who says that they're a pro-Trump Democrat? Right? Like what? Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's really interesting and, and uh, chimes in with a lot of what I've been thinking. So one of the key criticisms uh, of the highest level democratic socialists, Bernie Sanders being the obvious name, but also Elizabeth Warren, uh, is that the the perception is that democratic socialists have not been able to attract the black vote, yes. as if there is a black vote. Uh, but as, as you say, the democratic socialist project, Justice Democrats, up and down the uh, the the tickets in at all levels of government, have been promoting and successfully promoting. Uh, black candidates. You mentioned uh, Charles Brooker. You have Jamal Bowman in New York, who's just unseated a, a long-standing Democrat. Uh, you have Cory Bush in Missouri, Wait, who was who, along with uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, was uh, featured in the Netflix "Knock Down the House" documentary a couple of years ago from the last midterm midterms. She's now won, uh, and it's interesting that when we talk about black democrats or or the black elite of the democratic party we tend to, to tend to talk about versions of the congressional black caucus right we are talking about uh uh james clyburn in in south carolina we're talking about kamala harris in california we're talking about val demings but we tend not to talk about ilan omar or ayana presley as as black politicians we are talking about them as socialist politicians or as part of the squad or you know whatever name you want to want to want to use but it's interesting that the the sort of mainstream hegemonic stereotypical view of black politics is seen as somehow monolithically centered and centered with the kind of Obama Center, right? Like it's this is a, a lot of this is encapsulated with the Obama brand, 
as if that is the a that is the only brand of black politics and b that that is the only brand only successful brand of black black politics that in order to be able to uh, to be a successful black politician you have to be respectable and i'm using that yeah. in scare quotes because it's the 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 it's the respectable mainstream non-radical won't scare away too many people which is obama which is kamala harris which is uh which is uh yes a good proportion of black politicians but it's also a good proportion of all democratic politicians right it's, there's there doesn't seem to be anything specifically mainstream or centrist about the black vote across the board yeah yeah well and it's also i think it's it's interesting how the and a lot of this it's the democratic party as a kind of a central core discourse as slash leadership but it's also the way the mainstream media kind of the sort of left leaning the center left media reports on the democratic party that sort of gives us the the lay of the land and it's interesting how there are lots of there are lots of assumptions about the different blocks of voters that the stories that that are that lay on top aren't borne out by statistical evidence they're also not borne out by like common sense <laughs> So like one of my favorites is the idea that black voters vote as a single mass, as a single block, and that they're not subject to any of the other types of differentiation or tension that exists in all of the other like so-called voting blocks. Like white people are, are, fit, are thought of more as, as coastal elite and central rural or rural and urban they're or, or class-based working class versus middle class. All old and young. That, yes, exactly. The, there is a kind of, um, and I, I think it's laziness. Like I think common sense would tell you that there are generational differences between all voters, that this isn't purely a white thing. But that there is a sort of fantasy and a laziness that likes to think of and, and wants to think of black voters as being more clearly identifiable as black. That that is the kind of that's the sole defining feature, and that's and that's really it. But then it also elides the the way that the white vote is really white. Like it took it took significant kind of debate and discussion and promotion of research done by a lot of academics of color let's be let's be honest to show just how many white women vote for trump (laughs) that is not something that white ladies like me like to think about but the fact that like two-thirds of white women vote for trump is a you know it's a really important thing so there are these there are these sort of myths and fantasies that exist on top of the statistics. And the Democratic Party is really susceptible, I think, to some of those myths. Yeah, I mean, last week or the week before, Biden had another gaffe. You know, he's he's famous for his sort of foot-and-mouth gaffes, uh, where he, he said that the Hispanic community is, is diverse in the way the black community isn't. Um, but... 
and you you described it as laziness and there is certainly an element of laziness here but i wonder at at what point is is does a gaff stop being a gaff if you say what you really mean right like that this is what he's what he thinks uh biden and the mainstream democratic party still in 2020 think that the black vote is one vote is is a is a voting block uh and to what extent do candidates successful candidates like obama or kamala harris have to navigate their own careers if you like uh in in rec- or through recognition of the fact that the party within which they're trying to climb is a party that thinks of the black vote as one vote i guess would be an yeah. interesting question yeah well i mean a lot of that so the i mean obviously they do a bunch of research right there's like there there's an army of researchers that poll that go out and interview people that you know web scrape for hours on end looking at all the discourse on twitter you know they I, at least i hope they do this research but the but a lot of the story, I think, comes about because of the way that that research is conducted. So the assumptions that underpin the types of statistics that you deem important when you do election polling, um, the, the types of questions you deem to be important in order to get a, get an idea of who's going to vote for what and why, and the, the, the way that the methodology of polling as well, um, you know, the, the fact that it prioritizes older voters and it, it undercounts younger voters, for example, but like the, the building and the, you know, this is how discourses get made. The building blocks of the knowledge are both piecemeal and blinkered, which then give evidence. Like Biden will, will think it'll be a complex relationship between kind of assumptions about black people based on like the black people he knows, but also based on what he's given the kinds of evidence that he's given. And if all he's given is in order to get the black vote, you need to do this. And if the other evidence he gets for Latino communities is, well, Cubans vote this way. You're never going to get the Cuban vote, but Mexican Americans vote this way. And, you know, uh, Latinos in New York will vote this way, but Latinos in the Southwest will vote this way. You know, if he gets data that looks like that, then it reproduces the story. Yeah, it's it it's a it's an odd reference, but it's a it's a topical reference given they've just announced a, a reboot. It reminds me a little bit of something something like the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, where mm. which you know as early as the nineties, it it does a very good job of depicting different models of black identity based on class, and you can see that the you know. F- f- um, most of our, our listeners will know it's 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 a, a, a sitcom f- which launched Will Smith as an actor. Uh, he uh, goes from Philadelphia to to Los Angeles and to 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 live with his rich family, and you can see that the that the subtext behind Biden's articulate and clean and well spoken line is that it's the it's the LA family the LA black family as depicted in the in the sh- in the show would qualify for what Biden thinks of as articulate and clean and and well spoken and all of those things in the way that Kamala Harris also fits that mode of 
articulate and, and clean and well-spoken according to Biden's sort of uh, uh, estimation. Yeah, and of course, Yeah, and of course that, that brings ideological constraints of their own, right? So the 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 like like all descriptives the descriptives of articulate and and, and clean and well spoken are ideological descriptives not least because they are they are associated with Biden's mind in Biden's mind with a certain certain type of politics a certain type of mainstream supposedly electable supposedly respectable politics yes well, well yeah and, and there's an underpinning all of that which we uh, i think because we just think it's obvious what our listeners are all really aware of all this kind of stuff is the idea of articulate i mean if you, if you do any any kind of interested research on um african-american vernacular english for example um which historically has been uh i mean basically repressed i mean the white establishment and and white mainstream have you know tried to destroy um black communication ways that black people communicate with each other aave is a really complex and in many ways a more articulate way of speaking than a lot of mainstream white American English. So the, the assumptions about articulate at all are, I mean, after doing some linguistics research, they're, it's nonsense. It's, it's purely just white supremacy. It's, it's straight up white supremacy, but it's, and this is of course the, the critique that, scholars and activists make about respectability politics, that respectability politics is, is assuming that respectable is non-racialized, that it's not racial. It's just, it's neutral and it's objective and it sits in the center. It sits in the center of politics and it sits in the center of society and that it's not white supremacy basically. It reminds me a little bit that the I mean I I might be wrong here, but the first the first time that I heard Obama give a speech that had a distinctively black rhythm to it, a distinctively black black vocabulary to it, was the eulogy after the Charleston church shooting. Oh yeah, at, where uh, where he spoke at uh, Senator. Uh, Clementa Pickney's funeral and that was sort of you know it was towards the end of his presidency it was in the penultimate year of his second term and that was the first time I felt and maybe this was me projecting my my judgment on it but that was the first time I felt that Obama let himself be of a uh, of an audible, visible black candidate, right? Given given the entirety of his his political narrative has been, you know, crossing borders and unifying, and you know, there's no white American, black America, all all of that. And one can't help but wonder how strategic was that, right? Mm. That that 
it's only at the very end of his active political career that he feels able to appear black. Yeah, and in a black community. In a black community, yeah. He was in a black community as yeah. well. Um, the, the, and, I mean, the, the, the word, the word that, that black people use to describe it is code switching. Yeah. Um, the, the day-to-day experience of changing the way that you speak based on the audience that you're in and the intellectual and emotional labor that that involves. Um, that it's a... Uh, yeah, it's it, it. We were talking about performativity a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, it is a, a a a tool. One of the ways in which performance is is done. Yeah. Um, and in the context of the Democratic Party, you were talking about you know in in the for an establishment Black Democrat, how to navigate a Democratic Party that requires you to code switch even in the same room, like in a room with, with people where your, your audience might require you to code switch as you interact with, with, with each single person. I mean, the fact that Obama and Kamala Harris are successful is, I mean, it's incredible. Right. And it, it requires them to be of such a high standard that no wonder there are so few and and it requires them to be not you know not taking away anything from their political skill irrespective of yeah. ideology their political skill they it it requires them to be a certain kind of black right yeah. so yeah, yeah. so they are both light skinned which makes a difference um they are both mixed race uh they are and and the the Part of the the point about mixed race is you are constitutionally used to inhabiting multiple codes if you're mixed race. Um, I think it's also no coincidence that both Obama and Kamala Harris don't have U.S. based slave ancestry. I think that that the 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 social capital that you have even as a recent immigrant family over a a family with slave ancestry is really important here right so obama's father was from kenya his mother was white he grew up with his white family kamala harris's father uh was from uh slave ancestry but jamaican based her mother was uh south asian again she grew up mostly with a south asian family so the there needs to be several degrees of separation from uh from a from a slave heritage not because anyone is consciously saying i'm less likely to vote for you if you are of uh, descendant of from slaves but because that is how destructive slavery has been over generations you just don't have the levels of social capital you need in order to get to that point in terms of a political career. Yeah, and the there's something insidious, I think, about the way that the, the democratic discourse, kind of mainstream discourse, talks about um, certainly the way that Obama 
was spoken about in terms of his mixed race heritage because Obama identifies himself as black. He yes. identifies himself as a black man. He's married to a black woman. He has black children. He went to black church. He he very clearly identified with his black heritage. That was really, really important to him. And he's a black man. You know, he experienced racism and still does yeah. on, on like a minutely basis yeah. if you read the news. And but the, there was a real insistence on the part of a white mainstream to maintain his mixed race identity because there was something, it, it seemed to be like unifying that being black American and coming from a history of enslavement is so fundamentally other that it makes you suspect an anti and an potentially anti-American. Yeah. Yeah. It's really I mean if you if you dig that deep into it it's scary. Yeah, that that's that's really interesting. I hadn't I hadn't thought of that before, but I think that's a really interesting point. Um and and it, I mean it is really ironic that the the uh, the history of enslavement in the US makes all African Americans suspect that white supremacy posits anyone who has ancestry of enslavement as potentially a traitor. Is it too visible a reminder of the, 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 you know, the biggest national sin as it were? Mm. I think it's sort of, if, if you are a black, a successful black politician who isn't in a position to talk about, their great grandfather who was bought and sold, then you are able, in terms of a white supremacist mainstream kind of way, you are able to sort of forget that that happened and they're in a better position to make you feel reassured, as it were. Yeah, and if you if you buy into a discourse of the American dream... Barack Obama is an excellent example. And, you know, I mean, I, I, when Obama says that his story can, it was, could only have happened in America, he is sort of not wrong, right? Like, there, there is, if, I mean, British racism works in very different ways from American racism, but you can't imagine a British Obama, right? So the... No. the, the <laughs> And of course, that doesn't mean that the, uh, you know, historically sort of unifying trans, you know, the transcendental nature of Obama's candidacy as a narrative doesn't have its own problems. Of course it does. Uh, But there is something really complicated here at the heart of the way white supremacy works in the American context, I think. Yeah, well, and, and I, I, it's difficult to imagine a Kamala Harris as well in the British context. I mean, I'm just thinking of of um, the most high profile Black British MP, Diane Abbott, and her career. Um, I mean, for our listeners who who aren't British based and, and who have never lived in the UK, you may not know who Diane Abbott is. I recommend googling her. She's she has a fantastic and really interesting career. Um, but 
she, I, she would never be nominated to be the leader of the Labour Party. Even though I would love a, an Abbott government, you know? Um, I can imagine a Rishi Sunak being nominated to be the leader of the Tory party. Yes. Or even a Priti Patel. Sunak yes. probably Although more like Patel. Yes. Is this a different episode? I think this is a different episode. I've been, I've been <laughs> wanting to do an episode on the Tory party and its newfound love for British Asians. Because I think yeah. I think race works really differently there. So let's do a two-parter. We've let's do another one on the the Conservative Party and and race in in the British context. Um, hope that was of interest to people. Um, let us know what you think. Let us know if you are excited about Harris's nomination as as VP, or indeed Biden's nomination as next president perhaps maybe um yeah look after yourselves wherever you are stay safe and we will catch you next time time. see you next time bye bye we hope you enjoyed this episode i have been hannah fitzpatrick and i have been an india rich you can contact me on twitter at dr h fitz and me at Dr. Anindia R. Our show is on Facebook at State of the Theory Podcast and on Twitter at Theory Doctors. Our music is provided by the Agrarians and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be? Where would we be?